This is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is February the 16th, 2022. I hope you're all doing well. Uh, I am certainly in San Francisco. California is nice and sunny and warm if you want to come out here and enjoy yourself. We have been learning on the show recently that, and this shouldn't be news for most of you if, um, if you've been reading your books, that history is a complicated thing. It doesn't always work out in the way you'd expect. And the narrative, the chronology of history doesn't always make sense. It's certainly unexpected, ironic, full of color, and irony, and life, I guess. Uh, I did a, um, a wonderful interview, I thought at least, last week with the great English writer Antonia Fraser on a book she's just written about Caroline Norton, a remarkable British 19th century aristocrat who fell into a bad marriage, got beaten up by her husband, and turned out to be one of the most influential English social reformers in terms of women's rights in the 19th century. It was unexpected. No one could have ever imagined that, certainly from uh, Caroline Norton's childhood. History doesn't always work out then in the way we expect. And certainly the suffragette movement probably wouldn't have happened without Norton, um, even if a lot of her social, or, or, or many of her companions in her social class probably wouldn't have been that keen on the suffragette movement. The same is true, of course, of the abolitionist movement in the United States in the 19th century, perhaps the most consequential social movement of the 19th century. We had Linda Hirschman, wonderful writer, tremendous book, written a book about a printer, a prophet, and a contessa who shaped the abolition movement. Uh, one would, of course, expect um, abolitionism to be driven in the United States by men, remarkable men like Frederick Douglass, but not by the Contessa, a woman called Maria Weston Chapman, who happened uh, as a, a Boston aristocrat to be one of the driving forces in the abolitionist movement. Hirschman's really good on this and shows that the relationship between Chapman and Douglas in particular wasn't always particularly good. But as I said, history works in funny ways. It, it, it can't always be predicted. And that's the subject of our discussion today. I have uh, Gaul Beckerman on, a very distinguished uh, journalist and writer. He has a new book out, The Quiet Before on the unexpected origins of radical ideas. And he is joining us from Los Angeles of all places, given uh, the uh, the subtitle of his book, uh, Radical Ideas. Uh, Gaul, welcome. Are there any uh, radical ideas in Los Angeles? Have you found any? Only only radical people. There's no, no, no radical ideas. Maybe there are no ideas at all. That, of course, is the typically snobbish Northern right, Californian right, view. Right, right. Well, I loved your book. It's very intriguing. It's got wonderful title and subtitle. I, I want to get to some of the, the movements you cover in the book. Sure. Uh, you don't deal with the abolitionist movement and you don't deal with the women's rights movement in the 19th century. How do those, how, and I'm sure you know a lot about them, how do those movements fit into your general narrative, your theory of history? Well, they they also, you know, I, the, the 
one of the big ideas in, in my book is this notion of, of incubation. Uh, I kind of hate that word because I feel like Silicon Valley has turned it into meaningless uh, mush kind of jargon, but incubation is the notion that a movement that is going to somehow undermine reality as we know it, that's going to take apart a status quo, needs to first start a small, and it needs to start in a kind of a small, a heated, intense, intimate space. People need to be able to share these ideas, to engage with one another, to challenge one another, to egg one another on. And you sort of need those kinds of spaces in order for anything that's that's really radical and going to to, to you know upend the world to begin. Uh, abolitionism, uh, this women's right to vote definitely fall into the category of movements that were looking to dismantle the status quo. And they also, you know, I, as you said, I didn't look at them in my, in my book, but I know uh, from my own research that they, they also kind of utilize some of the same forms of communication that the movements I did look at uh, certainly did, you know, like small newspapers where some of these ideas began. Right, particularly uh, abolitionism, both uh, many of the, the leading figures, including Douglas, of course, had their own newspapers. Right. I can't resist this joke, Gaul, so forgive me for it. Uh, ideas need to marinate. So it's no surprise yeah. that one of the major figures in your book is Filippo Tommaso <laughs> Emilio Marinetti, one of the founders of the Futurist Movement. You have a wonderful chapter on futurism, why do you include Marinetti and, and futurism, which one wouldn't necessarily expect to show up in this kind of book? Well, I, for two reasons. One is I, I didn't want to only show examples from history that were uh, progressive and that would make us be able to sort of pat ourselves on the back. Um, that's certainly, certainly movements that from my political perspective, like abolitionism or like women's suffrage are incredible, important leaps in history. I didn't want to just show those. So uh, to focus on futurism, which was a movement that was essentially, you know, kind of a proto-fascism was important. Uh, that was the first reason. The second reason was I became fascinated with uh, manifestos, which became really the currency of the futurist movement. It was the way that they even talked amongst themselves. You know, uh, manifestos were these declarations uh, that got quite specific uh, about how they wanted to change uh, Italian the current Italian reality that they were living in, any element of society. It kind of started with art first. Uh, you know, their first targets were, um, you know, traditional painting and sculpture, but it extended to, you know, wanting to raise Venice and Florence to the ground and build big skyscrapers because they, they were embracing modernism and sort of a modernist aesthetic and a way of thinking that they hoped would kind of drag Italy into the new. Uh, into modernity, uh, but they wanted to do it through war, uh, through a kind of a violent means that they thought would would be the best way to uh, kind of start from scratch. So the manifestos were, uh, you know, and there were many, many of them that proliferated, were their sort of means of communication, both to the outside world, kind of a declarations of what they wanted, but also amongst themselves. As I said, you know, these were kind of iterative, you know, you'd have one manifesto and then another would sort of respond to it and then a third sort of build off the idea. They were written very collaboratively. So those two elements were why futurism sort of and marinetti and I hadn't really thought about marinating. Marinate, um, yeah. Marinating. Maybe that's where um, the word originally comes from. <laughs> <laughs> um, that, you know, for that reason. That Are you, uh, Gorn, I'm, I'm suspecting you, you probably can't 
say this to your Brooklyn friends, but now you're in Los Angeles. Right. Are you a little bit of a futurist? Do you have that instinct in you to rebel <laughs> against convention, to be slightly outrageous? I mean, you know, sure. <laughs> you know, what, what interested me in that chapter was, you know, I focused on the futurists, but more specifically on Mina Loy. Who was a woman? Who yeah, was, a remarkable woman. It's, yeah. a, it's a wonderful chapter. It's my favorite chapter in the book. Actually. Oh, good. I'm happy to hear that. So Mina, I cheated. I read that chapter first because okay. I'm particularly <laughs> interested in futurism. Um, Mina Loy was was sort of on the outside circles of these futurists. I mean, she had affairs with Marinetti and with some of the other leaders, so she maybe were not so far outside the circle. But she wasn't really thought of as a futurist necessarily. But she was inspired by certain elements of the movement, maybe the elements that I would be inspired by, not the fascism, but the idea of sort of re-examining everything and 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 taking a a microscope to different elements of the status quo, you know, and so for her, that meant, you know, she had sort of a proto-feminism that she wanted to build. She reminds me, I guess in a tiny bit uh, about Caroline Norton, although she certainly wasn't an aristocrat, she was from quite a poor family. What was interesting about Caroline Norton is her father ended up in jail Hmm. when she was growing up and she grew up in Hampton Court because she was this kind of itinerant aristocrat. And I guess what both Norton and the character in, um, in in your Futurist chapter suggest is that a little bit of disc- dislocation, mm-hmm. stuff that doesn't quite fit, usually mm-hmm. results in this in, in in social change. I think that's I think that's true. You know, I think for her, for Mina Loy, you know, she saw in those manifestos an opportunity to question. Uh, women's social roles you know she 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 used it to her towards her own ends you know she wasn't looking to kind of create war and sort of physical violence but she wanted to do violence on the concepts that she felt were sort of hemming her in as a woman in society and so she wrote her own manifestos she's kind of tried to enter the discourse uh through writing them and you know the 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 dominant sort of feeling in that group sort of overpowered whatever she wanted to do uh with it you know so she was sort of shunted aside but it still was fascinating to me that you know she saw creative potential creative power in in the form and that she used it the way that she did there's a long way conceptually and in time and space between the Florence of 1913, which you cover in your chapter on uh, on, on futurism, mm-hmm. and the Charlottesville of 2017, uh, okay. which your chapter is entitled The Torches. Mm-hmm. I was quite surprised this chapter showed up in this kind of book. Mm. Are you presenting Charlottesville as a proto-social movement? Do you give it that? Benefit of the doubt? Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, you have a group of people. Um, I, I violently disagree with them, just as I do with the with the, with the futurists. It goes without saying. But Unless, a- I mean, but the futurism, as a degree of ambivalence about futurism, there are a lot of people on the left within the futurist movement. Charlottesville, there's less ambivalence. It's, le- it's much more clear cut, isn't it? Yeah, I guess so. But, you know, I mean, futurists, futurists wanted um, wanted. Had pretty violent, bloody visions of the, you know, anarchic visions of what they wanted. Um, they embraced war in dramatic ways and didn't really believe in democracy. Um, you know, they 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 ended up aligning with Mussolini. I mean, that was that was the end 
point of futurism, you know, joining the fascist movement. So um, were they racists, you know, in the same way? I don't know. I wouldn't want to sit in. Well, let, well anyway, let's go, back to, let's go back to the, the torture. Well, I'll, I'll agree with you that I'm more, I'm, it's more distasteful for me <laughs> to think about those characters leading up to Charlottesville than it is the fascists. Absolutely. But, um, you know, I included that chapter for the same reason I included the, the futurism chapter in a way, which is here's a group of people, they do have a vision of how they want to change reality and that makes them a social movement. I mean, they, they, and they want to, they want to dramatically increase their ranks. They think that there's more uh, people like them, white people in America who kind of would, would agree with them if they could kind of just shave off some of their rougher edges. That's why it was interesting to listen in on these conversations they were having about, Maybe we should put away the swastikas. Maybe we should kind of shove grandpa, you know, with a, his, you know, swastika neck tattoo in the closet so that, you know, maybe more people will come along with, with us. Um, so they, they definitely want to, they, they have a vision in which they, their ideas become dominant one day. You know, the, the, that was how they thought. And so I had this chance to uh, peek in on a private conversation you know that they were having as a group in the months leading into charlottesville they were speaking on a platform called discord which is one that was created for gamers um but they made use of it and it allowed them to create these sort of private chat rooms and this uh this lefty hacker group you know gained access to thousands and thousands of these posts that they were writing uh really thinking that they were speaking privately and for me, it, it offered incredible insight into what a medium can do to sort of allow a group to cohere and to set its strategy and to, you know, deal with it. A lot of what they talked about was this question of optics is how are they going to look to the outside world? And, you know, they want to create this rally that's going to bring in as many people on the right as possible. It's called Unite the Right. So what do they have to do to get, for instance, the Proud Boys was this group that kind of wasn't at the time wasn't completely, um, you know, so far off mainstream as they were. So they were trying to find out what they could do to sort of convince them to come into their camp. And those conversations were very important for them. You know, they were very important that it was very important that they had a space where they could engage in those conversations. Gore, uh, you've done a lot of writing for the New York Times and the book was very nicely reviewed. You were described as brilliant. But one criticism, which I, I think I might agree with, is that you focus more on the formation of the social movements than the outcome. So yeah. one of the criticisms in the New York Times is that Tahrir Square and the Arab Spring, which you dedicate a chapter to, was a failed social movement. Uh, the unfinished business of the Arab Spring, I, I just found on the Washington Post or other stuff about how describing the Arab Spring after a decade of conflict, the same old problems remain. How did you define social movements and, and and why why should we consider them relevant if they fail well okay a number of things first of all <laughs> um the one thing that i mean i love that review but i think that um that mr shama didn't get that that chapter was actually about how the arab spring had failed and why it had failed it was very much sort of part of the argument that i was building that their over reliance on social media uh created led in part to their failure so so there's that but i look the book is about those nascent moments those moments where groups come together and begin to figure out how they want to make some kind of change 
and I don't have any illusions about how hard that is and and how often, you know, all these historical examples that I have are, you know, three steps forward, two steps back. And that that actually is how change happens in those kind of incremental ways. If you look at the Chartist movement, which I spend a chapter on, you know, I look at their early, the Chartist movement is a movement, of course, of working class people and starting in the 1830s who wanted to gain the right to vote. So they engaged yeah, in... Yeah, enormously enormous... important. I mean, of all the yeah. movements, probably you cover the most important in a in a in a in a socio-economic and political sense right so they they and they what but their means to uh gain or sort of make themselves heard in any way because they had no power no kind of representation was through this sort of loophole in british law that allowed them to petition the government and so they accumulated that first petition in 1839 when it was delivered to the house of commons had uh over 1.25 million signatures and it was laughed it was, you know, literally laughed out of, of of Parliament. But they went they went at it again. They did another petition, another petition, and I mean, it took another thirty years before there was a reform bill in the eighteen sixties that actually gave working men or people without land or property the right to vote. Um, but to me, that's a perfect example of, uh, you know, if you took a snapshot of that movement. <laughs> In 1839, when they, you know, bring in this enormous scroll, three miles long scroll into Parliament, and they are just told to get lost, uh, they wouldn't even vote to debate it. Uh, the, the, the vote to debate it was turned down. Um, well, uh, Marx, of course, was not a great fan of the Chartists. Yeah. Uh, because they were reformers, they believed that they could work within democracy and capitalism. Marx, of course, also famously said that we, and I think he was borrowing from Hegel as he tended to do, that we make our own history, but not quite in the ways we think we do um, when it comes to agency. Do you agree with Marx there in terms of the making and shaping of our own history? What did the research in this book tell us about our agency when it comes to shaping history? I mean, I, I believe we do have a lot of agency. So I, I guess I, you know, I, I think... But we don't quite know. I mean, did the Chartists we, we, we don't know, know what they were doing? Or the Futurists? Certainly the Futurists didn't know that they were paving the way for Mussolini. No, but they knew that they wanted uh, entry. They knew that they wanted World War I to happen. They knew that they wanted to create an atmosphere in Italian society where... Uh, war would happen because war was sort of the first step for them towards remaking Italian society. And likewise, the Chartists knew, the Chartists understood, at least, you know, the leaders like Fergus O'Connor understood that what they needed to build was a constituency. They needed to create a working class constituency that could actually uh, lobby for uh, the, the, the rights that they wanted, that they had been denied. So, um, and the tools they had to do that were very little, but they knew that that was their goal and that that was ultimately the only way that they were going to achieve anything. And they knew what they wanted to achieve, which is to, to, to get the right to vote. Um, what do you think about, um, you have a chapter on Black Lives Matter um, yeah. uh, entitled The Names, Minneapolis 2020. Do you think many of the participants in the Black Lives Matter movement, of course, in many ways responding to the murder of George Floyd, what were they trying to do in history? Well, I think, you know, the, the Black Lives Matter movement was a really fascinating one for me to look at as a kind of contemporary example, because here was a movement that started really as almost like a social media phenomenon, right? It was a response to this series 
of brutal uh, killings captured on video of black men by the police. And you know, the initially uh, in you know starting in like 2013, 14, initially it kind of remained a social media phenomenon. It would sort of like it was a hashtag, a hashtag that would it would flare in these moments where a video was released and people would be sharing it online and in. And you could say at one level that this sort of created and added awareness of the persistence of racism in American society, of the trouble uh, with the police and the need to reform the police, but it didn't really have a, a specific set of goals or objectives, you could say. But as time went on, you know, this movement, which began to realize the way that uh, that it could that there'd be booms and busts in visibility. You know that that moment in 2015, 16, and in Ferguson that happened that was a boom, and then there was a bust in 2016. It, the movement sort of as a as a hashtag that we'd all become familiar with kind of disappeared. Uh, you know, Donald Trump came on the scene in a way he sort of sucked all the oxygen off of social media, and this was a movement that was really lived off of that oxygen. And so what I was able to do was to talk to a lot of activists on the ground who then had to contend with that moment that the, the visibility had gone away, the attention had gone away. What do they really want? Who are they? You know, what do they what do they want to achieve in a concrete, make people's lives different <laughs> kind of, uh, you know, objective. And for a lot of them, it was it kind of focused in on the police and and reforming or you know, abolishing was the kind of the most dramatic uh, mm. um, uh, way that this construed the police. And and they really got to work. I mean, the groups that I looked at, I'm not talking about the masses that, you know, got went into the streets in the summer of 2020, but the activists who were sort of the frontline activists began to realize, first of all, that most people in the communities they were supposedly serving didn't want to get rid of the police. They had a, you know, they, they had problems here and there, but they didn't really buy into this vision. Uh, of abolishing or defunding the police. And so they had to do work to, uh, to, to build that constituency of people who might support. And might it was all, uh, as you suggested, Gaul, it was all unexpected. The quiet before on the unexpected origins of radical ideas. Who would have expected, as you suggested, the, 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 the narrative of Black Lives Matter in 2016? It's a wonderful book and it's a wonderful conversation, which is, of course, what all this is about. Uh, Gore, we're going to take a break for about 60 seconds, and I want to come back and talk about technology, media, and above all else, the internet, which I think drives much of the narrative in the book. So stay tight, everyone. We're talking with Gore Beckerman, the author of The Quiet Before. We'll see you in about 60 seconds. There'll be a lot of quiet for 60 seconds. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox, or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page. Um, 
in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live. Uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now, back to Keenon. We're back with Gore Beckerman, the author of The Quiet Before, a book about the unexpected origins of social movements. Very interesting read, fascinating subject. Uh, a very surprising book. It's not what one would expect. And, and, and that extends to the uh, inscriptions at the beginning. One might have expected there. There is one, of course, from Barack Obama, surprise, surprise, but nothing from Martin Luther King or Frederick Douglass. And instead, what I was particularly intrigued with uh, was a quote at the beginning from the media theorist, Neil Postman, who I think of as, uh, he's big, I'm a big fan of his, but he's actually fairly conservative. And uh, Gold quotes Postman, whether we are experiencing the world through the lens of speech or the printed word or the television camera, our media metaphors classify the world for us, sequence it, frame it, enlarge it, reduce it, color it, argue a case for what the world is like. Gold, this, this book is a book about media as much about social change, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is, because I sort of subscribe to, I mean, Post, Postman was picking up on something uh, the great media theorist Marshall McLuhan sort of was first, he he's, was the first one to kind of drop this, this bomb, uh, you know, this way of thinking about media as as something that shapes the way we the way we think, the way that limits the way we think, uh, or creates sort of a container within which everything that can be said and thought can exist, and there are things and and excludes other things. So you know, for him, it was the shift from uh, from the electron from from the age of the written word to the electronic age. Postman focused on TV and sort of visual culture, and there are other theorists who kind of. Uh, you know, Walter Ong is one that I, I always appreciated who talked about the, the shift from an oral culture to a literate culture and, and how that actually affected the way people's minds work. So, so I, I very much think, you know, and in some ways this is sort of a dusty way of thinking about media. You know, we've, we've kind of shifted to, to a discourse that's more about power and who has access to media and who controls it. And, but I think that there is a lot to be gained from kind of this McLuhan insight, especially, you know, for my purposes, it was thinking about what a medium can do for a movement that's trying to get off the ground. And so if you have a medium like social media, like a Twitter or a Facebook, that is all about uh, grabbing attention, gaining followers, being upvoted, sort of, it's a, it's a type of speech act that you commit there that is 
really just performative, right? If that is the dominant form of communication that you are using as a movement, as a group of people who wants to sort of get an idea off the ground, you're going to sort of contort yourself to, to fit into that mold, right? And what you lose as a result are, you know, a, is, is, is the ability to have real deliberation and thoughtfulness and exchange of ideas, which I think can't really happen on those platforms. I mean, and, what really seems to interest you is, is, is how we look, how we look through things. And it, again, it's absolutely. no surprise that the first chapter is certainly a pre-internet chapter is on a French astronomer called Peresh. I, I, I didn't know much about him. I found it again an interesting chapter, sort of a, a mist. I don't know if you're familiar with the Calvino book, Mr. Palomar, mm -hmm. uh, a book about looking through telescopes, obviously, Mr. Palomar. Um, you're fascinated with this act of looking, aren't you, Gore? I, I am. I, I really like that way of putting it, of the way you, the things we look through, uh, because I do think that there's shape, it, 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 forecloses certain ways of thinking and it opens up other ways of thinking. And, and I, you know, each of the, each of the historical chapters and the, the contemporary ones too, is essentially about a form of communication about a, a, a the, the way that the medium that we use sort of allows us to enter certain ways of being with one another or closes or closes those off, you know, so, you know, so if everything is a telescope, both quite literally or, or symbolically. Sure. And, you know, to go back to the Arab Spring for a moment, you know, in that chapter, I was looking at how a medium like Facebook was an excellent way of thinking through, you know, how do we get people, how do we get lots and lots of people to the central square? you know, within a short period of time. What you want is a bullhorn, right? You want an enormous bullhorn and Facebook was that. So that's what's one way of seeing, one way of thinking about the objectives of a movement. The problem is, is that, and it achieved its objective of having masses of people in the square at the same time, brought down the dictator. But then there's another sort of way of looking that you need, which is- What comes next? What do we do now? And there was no playbook for that. How do, you, how do you build? You know, you can, one, you know, a certain a medium can be very good at destroying and just not very good at building. And that was the, that was the, the conundrum that they had. Yeah. And the, the title of the, the New York Times, um, which uh, I'm not sure, again, if you would agree with the, the summary in the New York Times review, yeah. radicals used to make change, then social media happened. Of course, the Arab Spring, uh, which was unfinished, was the internet, the social media of Web 2.0. Now we've moved on, Gaul, to Web 3. How <laughs> different is this moment of Web 3? I know you you cover some quite interesting Web 3 figures like uh, Moxie Marlinspike, uh, quite an interesting character, who are using new technologies for new ways of seeing and new kinds of social movement. Well, I, I mean, I, I, you know, in the book, and I, I think, I really, I really think this. I, I I'm, a, I'm sort of optimistic because it feels like a kind of a correction, um, in that there is an understanding, even by Mark Zuckerberg, by the way, at least to hear him speak sometimes about what he wants Facebook to turn into, um, that that we need intimate spaces, we need opportunities to, if if the internet is going to be the dominant place where we come together and connect as it has been, you know, especially over these last two years, there has to be forms of communication that allow us to actually have 
um, to, to be together in a non-performative, non, you know, searching for followers sort of way. And, you know, so Marlon, Mar Mar Marlon Marlon Speak, which is a pseudonym, um, Moxie, Mar Moxie Marlon Speak, sorry. You know, no, Marcy, yeah, you know, when I think of my... When I think of Marlin Spike, I think of Tintin because uh, that was Marlin Spike Hall. I don't know if he named himself after that. It's not his original. Well, I name. love I love how prosaic his actual real name is. It's he's just Matthew Rosenfeld. Um, yeah. but, but it is a better name, Moxie yeah, Marlin. Moxie Marlin Spike. But you know, I really was intrigued by the way he talked about. You know, so he's he is he created this encrypted software that allowed us to have Signal, which is this very pretty yeah. tightly closed space where people can communicate and you know i i think most of us think of a space like that a closed encrypted space where only a few people can come in and that, as somehow um that there's something nefarious going on there that it's like they, they need the security because they're they're talking about things that are that are you know sort of antisocial, let's say um but he he framed it in a different way, which I found intriguing, which is he said, you know, if we live in a world where we just keep repeating the status quo over and over again, then you need a sort of a space where you can begin to imagine something different. So and let's you, imagine that um, uh, goal. Uh, you, you, you write about Mastodon, which is a, um, a web, uh, I think one of his web three kind of platforms or... Yeah. POL.is, uh, input crowd, output meaning. Right. These Web3 style architectures, whether it's Mastodon or, or Pol.is, what kind of social movements are they going to generate? I don't really know, to be honest with you, but I think that they're at least starting with the premise that they need to have uh, a different sort of um, mode of, of, of communication. And I think that that is, that is a that is that that suggests a self-awareness that let's say the Arab Spring revolutionaries didn't have a uh, self-awareness about the various tools that are at their disposal for making change that the internet is not just this um, place where you know every you know just what what's available for them to speak the loudest is the thing that makes most sense these 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 new forms of technology and new forms of communication, actually very attuned to the needs of of a small group of people wanting to sort of act as a vanguard and Do we have a preview of this in taiwan i know you're you're, yeah. you're you're an admirer of what's happening in taiwan well i mean i i i was kind of casting about to find examples of people thinking of social media in dramatically different ways and the taiwan example is interesting because essentially it, it employs they've, they've the government itself has employed this technology that allows people to sort of deliberate about uh, potential future laws that, that uh, or legislation that's that are going to be taken up and to gather input. And the way it works is, you know, you have uh, you, people come into a sort of a Facebook-like space, but they don't, uh, they, 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 they suggest a kind of ideas, they propose ideas, and then everyone else sort of votes on those ideas, kind of up, down, or past. And it creates a kind of visual map of, of opinion. Uh, and over time- It's like P-O-L-I-S, uh, input, crowd, output, meaning. That's right. So they want to get more, you, 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 the objective becomes the incentive structure. You know, we talk about a lot about incentive structures when we talk about these platforms. Um, the incentive structure is not about 
you know, saying the thing that's going to sort of draw the most attention your way. It's about coming up with the variation on, on an argument that actually is going to sort of recruit as many people to your point of view and sort of build up uh, the, the support for, for the way that you're framing things. And, and it's really been helpful for them in sort of cutting through really contentious issues. Yeah, um, a lot of people look at Taiwan as the future, as looking into the future. And I think that's exactly what you do in the quiet before. In an odd way, Gaul, you, you become a, an astronomer yourself and an astronomer of the future. Only the book is your um, telescope rather than a formal telescope. Do you think this way of doing history lends itself perhaps critically or otherwise, to a kind of teleology? I mean, is there a danger in this teleological approach to history, always thinking of ends rather than means? Yeah. You know, I, I think there can be, and I was certainly very aware of that as I was writing the book. But what was important for me was to focus, in, in order to sort of combat that in myself, was to really make this a series of stories. You know, I, I, the concept of this book was, can I, can I write an argument book, you know, presenting what I think to be, what I've come to understand to be true about how ideas sort of begin and the sort of that incubation that they need. Can I tell that story um, through a series of narratives? And, and a series of narratives that would kind of go back and start, you know, a long time ago, in my case, you know, in the 17th century and go all the way to, our contemporary moment. And you do include, um, I mean, you, you, uh, uh, sorry, a lot of you, uh, a lot of uh, our viewers will be familiar with your other, your first award-winning book, When They Come For Us Will Be Gone, The Epic Struggle to Save Soviet Jury. You do have a chapter on resistance to uh, the Soviet Union, but the one chapter I wanted, probably unfairly, because it particularly interests me, I mm -hmm. didn't do, which was a chapter on solidarity uh, which yeah. I thought was the most brilliantly uh, articulated in film, in Vida's film, Man of Iron. Did you grapple at all with any models from Eastern Europe, particularly perhaps Czechoslovakia or Poland? No, I, I, I did. And, I, you know, Samizdat, you know, which is the focus of that Soviet chapter, was very much a factor for uh, in uh, throughout Eastern Europe. Um, and um, and I, I look, I, you know, for every one of these chapters that I've included in the book, there's about six that I didn't, you know, yeah. that I did a lot of research and didn't include. And it, it, they were it was a function of, um, you know, kind of boring, uh, just kind of what, what I actually had access to in terms of material, um, what, you know, subjects that there was a lot of secondary sources sourcing on. Uh, and ones in which, you know, it was important for me in each of these chapters to shape a narrative, to really have a story right. uh, that, that focused on an individual uh, or a group of and people. And indeed, uh, just to borrow some language from you, we uh, we shape our own books, Gaul. You're not going to write books that other people want. We all write our own books. And you could probably <laughs> say to me, if you want to write a book on a social movement, write your own and include your chapter on solidarity, which is, I think... I mean, it's a good... It's a quite it's a great and interesting example. You know, I was... But it's was, a great book, uh, Gaul. Congratulations. Very original so and important. And I think everyone will find a chapter and themes which are incredibly relevant for today. Um as I said, you're talking to me from Los Angeles, of all places. What else should people be reading in mid-February 2022, in addition to your new book, Gore, which I think came out yesterday, so it's really very new? Well, my first, the first recommendation I have is actually an LA-based LA book. Uh, it's by a writer named Matthew Spector, and it's called Always Crashing in the Same Car. 
I think he came out a few months ago. He and he's the founder of the LA Review of Books out here. But it's a it's a fascinating. The reason I like it, and this is true of the other book that I'll recommend, is it's sort of a uh, um, a little bit like my book, kind of a mish a mishmash. <laughs> you know, mm. he he wanted to explore the idea of of failure, kind of to, to muse, oh, nice. but not celebrate it like these Silicon Valley billionaires, right? right? No, no, I'm talking about personal creative failure. You know, people who are trying to make it. You know, which is a big theme here in Los Angeles. People coming and trying to make it and failing. Um, it's something that he felt happened to him. He was a kind of a struggling screenwriter. His mother was also a struggling screenwriter. But he tells he does the book in a series of um, biographies of individuals who sort of almost made it, uh, made mm -hmm. enough of an impact that we still kind of remember them. But he really weaves his own memoir and his own sort of low moment in his life. Do you uh, know him? I don't know him, no. Oh, well, if he's uh, listening, we'll have to get him on the show. And your second yeah. book? And the second book is uh, Benjamin Labatut, who's a Chilean writer um, who, uh, who wrote a book called When We Cease to Understand the World, which is also, it's a strange kind of mix of nonfiction and fiction. Uh, but it's it, he's looking at scientists, at physicists uh, in the early part of the 20th century and exploring sort of the dark side of of the scientific uh, imagination, and it's a uh, it's a very rich uh, and interesting book, and the, the writing is quite quite amazing. Good. Well, your book is also rich and interesting. And finally, Gola, we're we're asking all our guests on Keen on to summate, and you, I think you're very well positioned to to answer this question. Uh, Gold Beckerman, who runs the world? <laughs> um, I, you know, my gut, the gut response I have to that is 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 I think young people. <laughs> As a, as a as a as a in a general sort of way, I think that we're so um, attuned to to where youth is just culturally, and they are in some ways sort of guiding not just our our sense of what kind of change is possible because I think young people are um, young people in America I think are are really wanting some kind of different reality for themselves, and we older folks are kind of feeling feeling that pressure on us when it comes to climate change, when it comes to our politics. Um, but I think culturally, obviously, that's true as well, is we're always chasing after what feels fresh and young. Um, that's my well, answer. Well, some generational wisdom from Gore Beckerman, the author of The Quiet Before. Gore, real honor to have you on the show. Love to have you back again to talk more astronomy, looking at social movements and figuring out both the past and the future. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you.